Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to Tales to Terrify. Good evening, children of the night. First, uh, before you come into the study tonight, I hope you'll take a look at the wallpaper. Hmm? Yeah, it's new. Before I gush over it, though, I, I want to thank Michael Brock for letting us put his work on the wall to announce our presence and to decorate this little anteroom for our first month. Uh, and you may have noticed I'm a flibberty gibbet, easily distracted, keep forgetting to thank people, to make announcements, to give out email addresses, uh, tales to terrify at gmail.com, or to pitch writers for stories, beg people to do fact articles for us. And anyway, before I get so involved in my shortcomings here, uh, again, thank you, Michael. Monsieur Brach is French. Uh, he's a painter and illustrator who lives in Paris. His art, mostly oriented toward dark subjects, is often inspired by music, books, legends, and mythology. Thanks again, Michael. You've been a great slipping-off point for Tales to Terrify. Come back now, you hear? Oh, did I forget? That's what you're listening to, Tales to Terrify, Episode 4. And the image you're now looking at, you are looking, yes, yes, it's by Galen Dara. Uh, her work can be found in Rigor Amortis, Cthulhu Rotica, Broken Time Blues, Monsters and Mormons, and the Lovecraft Easing. 
also some other anthologies and magazines. She blogs for the Functional Nerds and the Ink Punks. Her website is www.galendara.com. There's a lot of her artwork there. And as you can see from this piece, Galen has a thing for bones and connective tissue, the hidden stuff. She keeps several anatomy books that she pours over while at work, though what comes out of her pen frequently is some monstrously anomalous variation of what actually lies beneath all that life. It's good, huh? Oh, come on in now. Sit. Sit down by the fire. Tonight, we begin another fact article. In fact, this is the first of three that Mark Denitz calls Cinema Verite. Mark will talk about the camcorder trilogy of films, uh, Cloverfield, Paranormal Activity, and tonight, the tiny little film that more or less began it all, The Blair Witch Project, and its much later big brother, Cloverfield. So... Grab hold and focus on something stationary and have a listen to Mark. When it comes to horror films, the Blair Witch Project takes some beating. There are so many reasons for this that I'm unsure where to start. It is with this in mind that I start with the trivia, not often found in my film reviews but having some significance here. Although not fully confirmed, the estimated figure for the cost of the film stands at $35,000, with Artisan acquiring it for $1.1 million before spending $25 million on marketing. The film, mainly due to an excellent marketing ploy, went on to make $248 million worldwide, thus making it the third most successful independent film of all time, after Paranormal Activity and Mad Max. Filming took eight days, and during that time, 19 hours of footage were edited into 90 minutes of film. There has also been much talk about the techniques used by producer Greg Hale to keep the actors on edge throughout the filming. They were deprived of food, sleep, and constantly given conflicting information about the production. This was inspired by military training experienced by Hale himself. Having been brought up in the Pendle Witch area of England, I have a healthy fear of witches and the mythology surrounding them. However, I do not think this in any way means that this film cannot be fully appreciated without some sort of history behind it. Just something I am always reminded of when watching the film. The legend of the Blair Witch is built up in the town of Bucketsville, formerly Blair, with some of the events having bases in legend, but most created by the producers. Most of the filming of the Blair Witch Project takes place in Maryland's Seneca Creek State Park. The people interviewed at the beginning of the film are a mix of locals and planted actors. The three students, Mike, Heather and Josh, had been informed that they were all locals. The film is full of little touches like this. The film feels like a documentary. Even knowing it isn't doesn't diminish that. The actors are unknown, the camera work is very visceral... Heather Donahue took a two-day filming course before shooting, and the filming focused ad adequately enough on unnecessary information, such as whether the camera shots would be measured in feet or metres to give it authenticity. 
The documentary follows three college kids mentioned above as they travel to Bucketsville to discover if the rumours surrounding the famous Blair Witch have any substance. We receive all this through early reports from locals and readings from material that Heather has brought along. They're in pretty high spirits as the project begins, eager to get on with the filming and making quips at each other about their involvement beliefs. Heather and Josh know each other already, but Mike is new to the bunch. Introductions are made and they make their way to Bucketsville for some early shooting of the town and the interviews with the locals before making an early night of it in readiness for the day ahead. A day in the forest, searching for clues about the witch and killer Rustin Parr, rumoured to have killed seven children in a house in the very forest they journey to. After leaving the car and having found Coffin Rock, where five men were reputed to have met their deaths at the hands of the Blair Witch, Heather admits that she has led the group off the path, but refuses to accept the fact that this was in any way wrong. This is a pivotal moment, as this is what leads the group into more and more danger. The stress builds, not so much in terms of a sense of any supernatural force, but that sense of being lost in an unknown forest, a very real, very tangible fear. The group seems to cheer up as they make camp, and we are given a sense of relief. That is, until Josh kicks over a cairn in the cemetery and Heather rebuilds it as quickly as possible. The party then begin to hear sounds in the forest, leading them out to investigate. They find nothing, but can hear cracking sounds. A day of getting more and more lost finds the party waking up to three specifically made cairns outside their tent. This is just before we find out that Heather has no idea where the map is, leading to a massive argument between Josh and Heather, both claiming the other has it. The sense of panic is mounting, and they try to convince themselves that family members will soon be calling the police to send out a search party. A huge moment in the film is when Mike admits to throwing away the map, as he feels that it has not been helping them, but instead hindering them. The reaction of Josh and Heather really ups the tension here, and when Mike defends himself, all hell breaks loose. Panic builds as they then see the wooden human effigies in the forest, and any doubts that there is someone or something in the woods with them are all well and truly put to rest. Once we see the creations in the forest, the film kicks into gear, and that night the sounds intensify, leading to Heather leaving the safety of the tent, followed by Josh, and fleeing into the woods in the dead of night. Of course we see nothing, but this scene serves to intensify the anticipation of horror. We now know that not only is there something here, but that it is, in fact, out to get them, as upon their return the group see that the campsite has been defaced. On intensifying their desire to return home, the party begin to fight again, with Josh giving one of the monologues that describes a major theme of the film, the opening quote of this, I can see why you like this camera so much. It's not quite reality. Before they get to a log over the river, which Heather is reluctant to admit is the same one they crossed the day before, culminating in Josh's vicious attack on Heather, using her as the protagonist for the DV footage and leading her to an on-screen breakdown. The following morning Josh is missing, and Heather and Mike break camp and attempt to find him. The day is very ominous and melancholic, leading to a powerful evening in which the pair hear Josh's screams from somewhere in the forest. The following morning, Heather finds a bundle wrapped in material from Josh's clothes. Upon opening it, Heather finds what appears to be hair and body parts, a finger maybe, covered in blood, but makes the decision not to tell Mike. That evening, Heather makes her famous apology speech, 
asking for the parents of Josh and Mike and even her own for forgiveness for leading the party into the woods and to their deaths. I'm scared to close my eyes. I'm scared to open them. They then hear Josh again and go looking for him. The search leads them to a house in the forest and it is here that we see the end of Mike and Heather. Mike forced to stand in the corner whilst we hear Heather's screams. The Blair Witch Project is an incredibly powerful film, helped by its unknown actors, realistic camera work and the sense of foreboding that, for fans of slasher horrors, never quite comes to fruition. In the film we see cairns, effigies, blood-soaked clothing and finally we are given the proof that there is something there when hearing Heather's screams while seeing Mike stood in the corner awaiting his fate. What we don't see is the Blair Witch, we don't see Rustin Parr and we don't actually see anyone die, proving that in order to have a genuinely creepy film we do not actually need to see body parts flying around and gruesome creatures jumping at us from dark spaces. It's the anticipation of this, the fear that something is there, the not knowing what that is, is one of the elements that several classic horror films follow. One of the most frightening scenes I have ever seen in a film is in David Lynch's Lost Highway, when the protagonist is afraid that there is something awaiting him in the bedroom of his apartment. We follow him on his journey through the dark corridor from his living room to his bedroom, all the while waiting, dreading, before the terrifying conclusion of nothing. There is nothing there, and not only have we been forced to hold our breath in terror, but we have not had the release, however terrifying, that awaits us. The Blair Witch Project builds up this tension throughout, and we only get our release at the end, but by then it's too late. We are already deeply affected. The camera work is too real, we see everything too close, too raw, and this in turn affects us more than a film using standard techniques might. The sense that we are watching a documentary also affects us, and adding these two elements to three college kids who seem very real gives us no escape at all. I love the film for this, and for the fact that it is one of the few horror films of the last 15 years or so that truly terrifies me. That makes me feel uneasy whenever it ends, and actually fills me with trepidation every time I put it on. I still remember my first words after leaving the cinema at 3 o'clock in the afternoon on the day of its premiere in Berkeley, California. I'm glad it's daylight out. Something's found us. So reads the tagline of one of the most powerful films of its type so far. Being as several of the monster obsessives I know have dismissed the film for various reasons, and seeing as I, much as I am a lover of monster films, am not a monster film devotee, I am aware I may well be treading on thin ice in praising its quality. However, as I am not known to easily shy away from making a fool of myself in defending a beloved movie, I take to the stage once more. I agree the film starts quite badly, even though I understand why. There's a distinct lack of personality from the protagonist, and the handheld camera action is hard work at times, even for me. I usually don't have a problem with the camcorder effect, but in the early stages of Cloverfield I really do struggle. There's the shaky camera work, party gossip, revelations of flings at Rob's leaving party, and the wonder at this point is possibly why you're watching the film. And then, a little over 18 minutes in, the film begins in earnest. We did need the intro for the characters, but it was all leading to this, to the monster. The film picks up in action, pace, intensity, and even though I adored the early payoff in The Host, where we see the monster in no time at all, I feel that the delay in showing us the Cloverfield monster was done to perfection. I completely jumped out of my seat when the Statue of Liberty's head came flying down the street, just before we caught our first glimpse of something big something monstrous near a skyscraper. 
A sense of panic builds as the partygoers, along with half of New York, try to make their way out of the city before we see a massive tail take half of the bridge and Rob's brother Jason along with it. This is where, like the Blair Witch Project, that Cloverfield stands out, as the filming feels real. You can't understand why someone would keep filming at a time of such distress and faced with something so unbelievable, but you also understand why it happens. It almost becomes an extension of Hood himself. We then get a glimpse of the monster from another screen, as people in an electronics store shop stop to see the monster's companions. The smaller beast is grabbing a few civilians from the street before the best shot, when the four protagonists flee down a subway tunnel to get away. It's here when I think the early ages of the stages of the film are justified, as we see Rob's insistence on tracking down Beth, which we would have had no feeling for otherwise, and Rob's telephone call from his mother, where he has to explain that his brother Jason is dead. They're all running in the same direction. It's like they're running away from what? And then we meet the little beasties, who are not actually so little, and where, unfortunately, the film loses a little again. As much as we want the camcorder to follow the action, we want it to be as believable as possible to strengthen our suspension of disbelief. As Hood is attacked by the monsters, there's no way he's going to keep that camera running or hold it while his companions are attacked. Again, this is where the Blair Witch Project shines, as there is never a moment in that film where the camera action doesn't gel, doesn't fit. The film blends the pace well, the direction keeping the dialogue within reasonable frameworks, before handing over to the action, which in turn is sharp and punchy. After leaving the subways and smaller monsters, we move into what I consider the most disturbing part of the film, where Marlena starts to show symptoms from the attack, and they are surrounded by the military, before Marlena is taken into quarantine. I'm not so sure whether this is disturbing because of what is actually happening to Marlena, or due to the whole military involvement, and what that usually results in in these kinds of situations. That they are befriended by an army officer who helps them to get out of the building helps to counter this trope a little, but serves more to dilute than to diffuse. We then follow Lily, Robin Hood, as they make their way to the apartment block where Beth is, and here is one of the most gripping and enjoyable scenes, as they travel between collapsed rooms at dangerous angles to get to their destination. During the trip to Beth and the ensuing reunion between her and Rob, we are witness to a cacophony of sounds both from inside the apartment, as Hood is forced to put the camera down to help them rescue Beth, but also from the battle outside between the monster and the military. What's that? Something else. Also terrible. Leaving in the helicopter gives us much more scope, as instead of seeing everything up close and personal, we get an overview of a section of the city and our, up to now, best glimpse of the beast. And for a beast, he's rather impressive, first as he raises the city, before knocking the helicopter carrying Beth, Hood and Rob out of the sky. We then get a couple of minutes of camera stasis as we hear about Hammerdown, and how it is due to be initiated in 15 minutes. We know now there is not much time for our gang. Hood then meets the beast, in the most gruesome and well-delivered of scenes, before we are left with Rob and Beth in a tunnel, understanding the gravity of their situation. Rob decides the best thing to do is document what has happened from their perspective, and for those that may find the video afterwards. The film then ends and we return to the past, and Rob and Beth's date at the fun fair, before the camera dies and the credits roll. There's a lot packed into 85 minutes, and it shocks me every time I watch it, that it's actually less than an hour and a half. 
In fact, the 85 minutes refers to the whole film from start to 10-minute closing credits and the wonderful roar, Cloverfield Overture, by the excellent Michael Giacchino, an accepted tribute to Ifakubi's Gojira theme. The film is actually 73 minutes long, the length of a DV tape, giving a greater authenticity to the piece. Not only is there much within the story to feast your eyes on, with reviewers using superlatives like chillingly effective and with a whip-smart, stylistically invisible script, but there is obviously a reaction to events such as 9-11 and subsequent terrorist attacks that give the film a little bit more of an edge for the US public. I've read an equal number of reviewers damning the film for its over-the-top-in-your-face approach to the subject of terrorism as those praising its use. Referring back to an article written by James Willett, Remake and Reboot, I can't help but agree with his sentiments about why Cloverfield succeeds and why the Godzilla remake fails, as the former follows the themes and feel of previous monster films, those that look at society and the human persona, whereas the latter is merely a big monster going around trashing New York, a pale shadow of its 1954 original. Whether it is less subtle than other films is of course up for debate, I merely state here that it at least falls into the same category of the greats in terms of intention. J.J. Abrams stated that he wanted to create a monster for the US, a monster that could rival Japan's Godzilla, and here I think he failed, more for the fact that less than five years after Cloverfield's release we are getting ready to witness another remake of Godzilla. Why I think he might have failed is that he wanted to give the US filmgoers a monster that they could call their own, not entirely realising that they had already bestowed that title on the Japanese behemoth. It doesn't matter that he's not from the US. The ultimate irony is that he was created as a response to the atrocities inflicted on the Japanese by the US, for he's already part of their cinematic makeup and will remain so. But Cloverfield is a great monster movie. It works on all the right levels. The tension builds up superbly. Once the monster appears, the monster itself is fabulous especially with its smaller cousins, friends, offspring. The idea for the videotape lens, sublime, etc. It's a film I thoroughly enjoyed the first, second, third time around and will, I suspect, enjoy the more I watch it. Thank you, Mark. Mark S. Denitz is a publisher, editor, and writer. He's based in Sweden. Mark set up the dark fiction publishing company, Morrigan Books. Uh, that's at http colon slash slash www dot. And here we go, reading one of these things again, morriganbooks.com. That's M-O-R-R-I-G-A-N-B-O-O-K-S dot com. And it's imprint Gilgamesh Press. That's http colon slash slash www.gilgameshpress.com. I'm not going to spell it for you. He has had several short stories published, primarily with Big Finish. His main blog can be found at You're In My Head, mark.deniz, D-E-N-I-Z, at wordpress.com. Mark lives on the southeast coast of Sweden with his wife and their two children. Okay, here's a bit about me that you probably don't really need to know, but which I think I should tell you. I like poetry. It's a confession. 
Years and years ago, when I was stuck working on a novel, I suddenly realized I needed to focus to make each word do more. So I began hanging out in bars, not just for that, but for the poetry involved. Chicago is a big bar poetry town. Then, for my sins, after having listened for a while, I began writing. Well, I began writing what I called poetry and read in those same bars and actually developed a bit of a following. Then I got back on track and eased into prose. Mm, but still... <laughs> See, I learned to read sitting on my grandfather's knee, watching his finger nudge the words across the page. Poe was a main fancy of his. Fact was, I thought poetry was called poetry because Edgar Allan wrote it. Anyway, here are a few words about Bruce Boston. Bruce has been one of the leading genre poets for more than a quarter century. He's won the Bram Stoker Award for Poetry, the Asimov's Readers Award for Poetry, the Risling Award for Speculative Poetry, each a record number of times. In fact, every time I've been to a Bram Stoker Award dinner, Bruce has had something on the finals list. He holds the distinction of having appeared in more issues of Asimov's than any other author and of coining the word cybertext. In addition to writing, he edits speculative fiction and poetry for The Pedestal magazine and is an acquisition and book editor for Dark Regents Press. If you want to, you can stop by and peek at him at www.bruceboston.com, and that's spelled just about the way it sounds. Bruce lives in the City of Trees, Ocala, Florida, with his wife, writer-artist Marge Simon, and the ghosts of two cats. He's written 50 books and chapbooks, including the novels The Gardener's Tale and Stained Glass Rain. His poetry and fiction have appeared in hundreds of publications, including Asimov's SF, Amazing Stories, Weird Tales, Strange Horizons, Realms of Fantasy, Year's Best Fantasy and Horror, and the Nebula Award Showcase. Here's Bruce's poem, Soul of a Victorian. Too late. You have signed the deed. When you hear a wailing in the cellar, you find her blind and stubborn as a root naked draped in old lace. As you lift her through the trapdoor, the wind begins to pierce the eaves, to fill the high and narrow rooms with the reek of wood's damp rot. She tells of the graves in the yard, one cat, three dogs, a fetus. She speaks of an empty carriage, the rusty stain on the hall paper. And while you are listening, you taste the dead hours and grasp the worm's artless consummation. You feel time between your fingers. She is slipping back from you, down to the dark lampshades, the chest with the broken hasp, to photographs of forgotten Memory.
Soul of a Victorian was first published in the fall 1986 edition of Night Cry. And thanks, Bruce, for letting us have that. We'll have more of him. He'll be back. And thank you, Roland, the little guy I keep in the attic, for reading that for us. For tonight's main fiction, we leave England and the Moors from last week's show and return to the States. We head west, slip back in time to just after the American Civil War. This is B.C. Bell's SF Reader Award-winning How Pappy Got Five Acres Back and Calvin Stayed on the Farm. The boy cursed the sun, the soil, whatever a hell else it was that made cotton grow. He wiped the sweat out of his eyes and put his hat back on so his brains wouldn't scramble in the heat. He decided then and there the farm was a living death. The war between the states was over, so he'd probably never get the chance to use that as an excuse to get away. His oldest brother had. Robert Earl Anson had ridden out a dirt farmer and come back a war hero. Of course, that was before they found out he was a horse thief and a murderer of women and children. Calvin wasn't sure if he'd go so far as to horse-thieving to get off the farm, as far as murdering women and children. Well, that would probably be too much work. The only women and kids he'd ever seen had been family, and they was just too tough to die. He'd seen his Aunt Trudy take three blows to the head with a shovel one time, and she hardly looked up. A man would have to be just plain mean, or crazy maybe, to murder somebody. Calvin figured picking cotton might eventually drive him to it. That's probably what happened to his brother. Just last night, Robert Earl had ridden back in with three bullet holes in his chest and one big one in his back. Somehow he'd managed to crawl off his horse and enter the storm cellar during the night. He still had his Confederate cavalry trousers on when they found him. There'd been a wanted poster with his picture on it in his saddlebags. It was a good likeness. The paper said General Quantrill's army had been declared war criminals. Quantrell's guerrilla raiders. You boys get the hell out of here and get back to work, Pappy told him. I'll tend to Robert Earl just like I done for your mom, Aunt, just like I do for everybody. Pappy kept cussing under his breath. The rest of the family went back to work. The women in the house, the men in the fields. Running from the pasture to the crops, Calvin caught up with his only brother, Albert, you think Robert's going to be okay? I mean, it looked like he had a hole clean through him. He'll be fit to fiddle Dixie soon as old Pap tends to him, Albert said. Remember, Mama? She looked all grayer and pastier than you do now. Calvin's brother punched him in the arm the way brothers do and ran off before Calvin could punch him back. Pappy had just given him five acres of land in the north pasture to marry on, 
If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Albert was eager to farm it. Calvin smiled and remembered last fall. He had been sure Mama wasn't going to make it. That was when Pappy told him for the first time, nobody's family's going to die if I can help it. Mama suffered some. Papa said it was always harder for women. They had to go through some changes come Mama's age. Next day, she was walking around the kitchen, loading wood into the stove. Good thing for them, Pappy was there. Pap Anson had learned doctrine from every race of man between here and Mexico, black, white, and red. If a man's bones were in one piece, Pappy could fix him up. Calvin's cousin told him once that Mama and Pappy had at least two hundred years between the two of them, and Calvin knew it for a fact. Pappy could remember back before Missouri was even settled. Old Pap had been studying medicine all his life. Thanks to him, nobody in the farm ever ailed more than a day or two. Calvin stopped smiling when he went back to work, trying to hoe an endless row of cotton. High cotton and dead dirt. He'd never been able to figure it out. The soil that wasn't brown and dry was gray and dead dust so thick he wondered if it added extra weight at market time. The Anson family had been planting and yanking cotton out of the same field every year of his life. Thirteen years. 
Even he knew you were supposed to transplant sorghum or something every couple years just to keep the dirt alive. But somehow, Pappy always got it to work. Old man could probably grow orchids at the North Pole. Calvin swung his hoe down as hard as he could and hit a chunk of dirt he would have been lucky to crack with a pickaxe. That's when he decided he couldn't stay on the farm. He wanted to see the world, live a life of adventure before he wound up having to go through his changes. Hell, the only time he'd ever been off the farm was to go hunting. It wasn't that he minded all the old folks there. It was just that he and his brothers and Pappy were the only ones that even bothered to talk. Calvin wanted to see magical cities, buildings and circuses and fairs and shows. Robert Earl had told him about a saloon one time. Calvin wanted to try drinking and gambling at least once before he got too old. And once, just once, he wanted to see a naked woman. He was still picturing naked women in his head when the August sun faded from the inside of his eyelids. He opened his eyes and noticed Albert over in the north pasture talking to a stranger on the back of a paint horse. The stranger wasn't dressed the way the people from town did, at least not the ones Calvin had seen. This man was wearing all black on the hottest day of the year, and it wasn't even Sunday. The man leaned over the saddle horn, looking down at Albert with a little grin on his face like they was just talking. This in itself made Alvin curious. People never visited the Anson farm. Pappy didn't take to strangers. Calvin wiped his forehead again and put his hat back on. The shade cleared his eyes just in time for him to see the stranger grab his brother by the collar with one hand and pull a sawed-off shotgun out of the scabbard with the other. The man lifted Albert up in the air with one hand and pointed the gun at his head and then dropped him back on his feet again. The visitor and the gun both at once were too much for Calvin to handle. He stood there, frozen, trying to catch his breath so he could yell for help. That's when the man in black lowered the shotgun, and Calvin saw Albert's head explode. Calvin heard himself hollering before he was even aware he was the one doing it. The shotgun's echo didn't reach him till after he'd started screaming. That's how far away he was. But even at that distance... When the man's eyes met his, he felt a chill. A man would have to be mean or crazy. With his voice still ringing, Calvin started to run, but his feet were glued to the ground like in a bad dream where your legs don't work right. Calvin saw himself hit the dirt between the rows of cotton and started crawling as fast as he could toward the house. But the cotton was poor cover, and what he first thought was his pulse racing in his ears turned out to be the hoofbeats of the stranger on the paint. If he stood up and ran, the crazy man would shoot him in the back. If he started screaming for help, or just get more family killed. All he could hear was the hooves tromping in the dirt. The sound was deafening, hot, damp, scared, and shaking. 
he curled up into a ball around one of their cotton stalks and closed his eyes. The horse stomped on one of his fingers. He jumped up and yelled in time to see the hoof just miss his head when the horse stopped. The man on the black jacket was laughing. Boy, get the hell up, a stranger said, cocking the sod off and pressing the barrel against Calvin's forehead. Calvin wiped a tear from his jaw like he was wiping off sweat. He'd stopped crying when the horse stomped on him. It took his fear away. The man in black made him angry, not just about his brother's death, but his own eventual outcome. Not only did he very much mind the idea of dying, but he had also been hoping he wouldn't be forced to see it coming. He'd never seen death before. Even if Calvin were lucky enough to live through this, he'd probably get his ass kicked for not getting a full day's work done. The fear of his grandfather replaced his fear of the crazy man. He spat on the ground and stared right back at him. Do you know who I am, boy? The stranger said. Calvin just kept staring. Yeah, well, neither did your friend over there, so I showed him. He didn't seem to want to learn too fast, though. What about you, boy? Are you a quick learner? Or are you as dumb as you look all curled around that cotton like a bow weevil? The man slapped the saddle horn, smiling at his own joke. He looked down, demeaning Calvin, like the kid was too stupid to get it. I ain't dumb, Calvin yelled at the man. He grabbed the gun barrel and pushed it out of his face. The stranger swung the barrel back down on his head. Calvin suffered the sting. He felt his scalp go numb and split with a swelling throb. His eyes went black and he dropped to his knees. Yeah, you are, grub. You're as dumb as a stump if I say you are, and I say you are. He pushed Calvin upright with the barrel of the gun pressed between his eyes. You got that, boy. Calvin just nodded and waited for the pain in his head to subside. He tried to stand up still, but couldn't help stumbling around. You ever hear a killer Jim Curtis, boy? Before Calvin could figure out whether or not to nod, the man had answered his own question. Probably not. You know why, boy? He pulled the gun back, so Calvin had to look down both barrels. Because most of the people that ever heard of me end up like your friend over there. You understand me, boy? Calvin nodded. Now, I'm not going to take the time with you that I would wipe in my ass, you dumb southern bastard, on account of I already left you a message over in that fail. You understand? Calvin nodded again, wishing the crazy man would stop asking questions and get to the point. Yesterday, I trailed a man named Robert Earl Anson over this side of the river, the stranger said. He was too dumb to know I'd shot him full of holes, but I trailed him right here to this farm. So here's the deal, boy. I'll be returning first thing tomorrow morning, only nobody's going to know exactly where I'm hiding. He spoke softly. Not gently. But if Mr. Robert Earl Anson or his body ain't here on this very spot by noon tomorrow, I'm going to shoot you and whoever else lives on this turt pile deader than hell. You got that? Calvin nodded as much to clear his head as to just get rid of the crazy man. The barrel slapped the side of Calvin's head and Killer Jim was riding away. Calvin fell on one knee and held his skull together with his hands. Pappy was going to be angry.
Close to half hour later, Pappy was. God damn that son of a bitch, he blew his head off, Pappy said, spreading his hands in the air. They had pulled what was left of Albert's body into the back porch and were standing over him. Pappy clenched and unclenched his fists. We're gonna have to have a closed coffin funeral. Damn it, you know how long it's been since we had a funeral in this family. Been since your ma died, Cal. Pap was crying and gritting his teeth. Every bone in his body was taut, shaking. Calvin had never seen Pappy give up on healing anybody. Never. This was bad. I'm afraid there's nothing I can do. Pappy's voice cracked. You just can't treat a wound like that. We's gonna have to bury him. Mama moaned from behind Pappy, and Aunt Trudy moaned in the kitchen. Cousins, brothers, and mothers, sisters, and children, and friends all joined. A keen in moan, a low wail emanating from the land itself. Pappy looked at Mama with a tear in his eye, and then looked over at Albert's body. Calvin, I'm going to need you to build him a coffin tonight. You can use the wood stored by the barn. At least that way you'll get a real pine box. First, though, I want you to come with me. I want you to tell me everything happened, and I'm going to show you something. The only time Calvin had ever seen a visitor before was back when the war started. Everybody from town had seen some Yankees working in one of the fields, and the local militia had ridden out to see which side Pap was on. Even back then, Pappy didn't want to talk to strangers. He sat Mama out to scare the hell out of them. Pappy had finally calmed the militiamen down and told them, anybody ties to take any ants and property, they're going to end up just like those Yankees. Work in the fields. Nobody from town ever visited after that. So Calvin told Pappy all about Killer Jim Curtis on the way to the barn. Pappy listened, chewed tobacco, and spit nails. When Calvin had finished, Pappy looked meaner than a red hog. Then he smiled. Killing Jim Curtis it is now, isn't it? Pappy said, slipping back into his old brogue. Man's got to be stupid to go around calling himself killer. I think we got us some teaching to do. Calvin, Pappy went on, I owe you an apology. There are some things I think you need to know about life, about family. See, I've been around a long time, a long time, and I plan to be around even longer. I always thought Robert Earl was going to be my successor here on the farm, and I figured you and Albert could pursue farming or whatever else appealed to you. Problem was, I taught Robert Earl a little too much too early. He was too smart for his own good. Then another war started, and he ran off. I'm guessing he used some of what I taught him. Well, you see how he wound up. Then I started watching you boys' temperament. No offense, son, but you got some of Robert Earl in you. None taken, sir. Well, fact is, I always kind of figured you was going to run off just like Robert Earl. Not to say you're not exactly the same, Cal. 
Robert Earl, he was just wild. But you, sometimes I can't figure out what's going on in that head of yours at all. That's my fault for not spending enough time with you. Hell, Calvin, with anybody else in the family the way they is, I just kind of stopped talking unless it had to do with work. Well, I'm sorry. It's all right, Pappy. I appreciate it, Calvin said. Now, let me get to working on that pine box for Alba. No, no. Now, listen to me, Pappy said. I kept a lot of things about the family and the world from you because I always thought it was going to run off. I knew you'd do well, make me proud. I just figured when you got out in the world, you'd figure it out for yourself and you'd be okay. Fact is, I should have been teaching you all along. Now what I got to teach you may take some time, but we'll take the time as soon as we get rid of killing Jim What's-His-Name. What I want you to know right now, though, is that everything I've done i done because I love you. The other thing you need to know, son, is that in most families, people die all the time. Not like Albert did today, but people do die. Pappy's eye gleamed, and he looked up at the sky as if for guidance. Except for us, son. Us? Well, we're blessed. About a year and a half ago, Cousin John John come to visit. John John said that when Pappy came back from being a prisoner in the Creek War, his head hadn't been exactly right. Said Pappy had gone too far with some of his doctrines. Said he'd been learning too much from Injuns and niggers, and that made him crazy. Cousin John John said Pappy had sealed himself in on the farm and was living a life contrary to God. Calvin had a mule once that Albert had called contrary. Calvin thought John John meant Pappy was just being stubborn. Hell, if Pappy wasn't stubborn, nothing on the farm would have gotten done. The only other people besides his brothers and Pappy that Calvin had ever met were Cousin John John and the family back home, the cousins, brothers, and mothers, sisters, and children, and friends. Cousin John John left the same day he arrived and never came back. Pappy had stayed up all night doctoring Robert Earl, drawing funny shapes and letters on the floor and walls of the barn. Green and yellow lights flew out of the fire while they drank the black drink that Pap had shared with Tecumseh. Locked up in the barn doctoring Robert Earl, Pappy began to show Calvin a world that he'd never dreamed existed. Pappy wanted Calvin to be a doctor. They stayed up all night, treating Robert Earl and doing the dance. They finished at about two in the morning. We'll have to wait till daylight to see if it worked, Pappy said. But between you and me, son, I think you'll get along. You got strong medicine for such a young man. That was the first time Pap had ever called him a man. You mind if I stay up and work on Albert's coffin? Calvin asked. I don't think I could sleep anyway. You have at it, son, and make sure to wake me by daylight. We're going to have some fun. At dawn, Pappy came out with coffee and cornbread for breakfast. 
Calvin showed him the pine box he'd made for Albert's coffin. It wasn't until years later that Calvin realized the reason Pap had choked on his coffee because he was trying not to laugh. You never seen a coffin before, have you, Calvin? Pap said, wiping the coffee off his chin. No, sir, but you said we had to make him a pine box. I figured this one would fit him just fine. Pappy paused and looked at it. He bit his lip and smiled. Having never seen a coffin, Calvin had made a pine box. That was simply that, a pine box, which was fine, but Albert had been almost six feet tall, and Calvin had measured the box out at a little less than five, just big enough to hold Albert's body without his head. And a fine coffin it is, Calvin, Pappy said, just fine. Come on, let's get Robert Earl ready. They started Albert's funeral at about half past eleven. Everybody in the family had their best clothes on except Pappy. He was dressed in a tight and green kilt, but with buckskin breeches beneath it like the natives wore. He had on bracelets and boots with the wolf fur still on them, and a Scottish tam decorated with feathers sat military style on his head. Hanging loose on his chest was a fearsome-looking mask made of some strange wood Calvin had never seen before. Pappy stood tall, holding a ceremonial staff with some of the odd shapes that he'd drawn in the barn carved on it. Calvin held a lantern from some place he'd never heard of. It reminded him of a teapot, and it hung on ropes like a puppet. He was supposed to wave it back and forth and lead the procession. Aunt Trudy had dug a grave. Ever since that incident with the shovel, she hadn't trusted nobody else. Pappy had almost finished with the Christian part of the ceremony when Calvin spotted the black figure coming over the hill in the distance. Ashes to ashes, dust to dust, and Pappy started to dance. Calvin ignored the oncoming figure and let the fire The rest of the family stepped back, wary of the blossoming flames. Calvin began to circle the gathering, waving his lamp, shrouding them in smoke and scent. A black figure in the distance became Killer Jim Curtis. He was galloping full speed, firing his shotgun in the air and hollering, Boy, I come for Robert Earl. Where is he? Don't make me angry. A hundred feet away, the paint stopped, reared, and turned to its side. Jim stopped yelling, but you could hear him cussing the horse. He struggled to control the reins and the gun at the same time. When he got the shotgun back in the scabbard, the horse calmed down some. But when he shook the reins again, it just turned back and forth. It wouldn't come any closer. Jim stepped down on the edge of the cotton field. The horse continued to back away, skittish. The killer pulled his revolver and headed toward the ceremony. If you're burying Robert Earl, don't bother. I got business with him, dead or alive. And Killer Jim smiled that same demeaning smile. He ain't here, Pappy said. He damn well better be, Jim cocked the revolver. Or every ignoramus on this farm is dead, and that's all you halfwits. Watch your language, goddammit. Happy said, we're having a funeral. We'll be having more before I'm through, Jim yelled and fired his six-gun at Pappy's feet. 
Pappy just stood there. Jim cocked the pistol. Galvin, give Mama the lantern and go get Robert Earl, Pappy said. Calvin handed the lantern to Mama. She didn't even raise her head. Nobody in the family did, except for Pap. You must be crazy as you look, old man. You expect me to believe Robert Anson's still alive, Jim said, much less able to walk. You'll be dancing on your grave, Pap said, whatever your name is. That must have riled Jim, because he fired another shot toward Pappy's feet. Pappy began to dance. Damn you, hillbillies, crack me up, Jim said. You're so damn mush-brained, you think I'm stupid as you all are. Guess I'm supposed to be all impressed with your Bible beating or the fact that you ain't run away yet. And then if that don't work, I'm supposed to take pity on the pathetic geezer and his suffering little family, all quiet and humble. What you don't get, old man, is I don't care. I know Robert Earl is dead, and I just want that body to collect my reward. It ain't like you're losing anything. The hinge on the back door creaked, long and loud, and Robert Earl stepped out. He was shirtless, but he had his gun belt on. Pappy almost cracked a smile, and Calvin giggled in the window. Calvin was watching through the hole in his brother's garden, and while normally that would have disturbed him, somehow it just made the blank expression on Jim's face that much funnier. Jim's gun started to shake, and he rotated slowly toward Pappy. He moved like the bird in Mama's cuckoo clock, like he was driven by gears, waiting for the spring to unwind before he could peep. Robert Earl cocked his pistol. Killer Jim Curtis stood stone still, his revolver hanging in his hands in front of him. His mouth was open and his eyes stared blank. Calvin could almost smell Jim's alcohol sweat over the incense. The killer's eyes jerked all around him, looking for some kind of way out, but he couldn't move. He was frozen, and in that black coat, on the second hottest day of the summer. Ah, uh, I... His voice cracked. Now, I don't know what you... You... You backwater sodbusters are trying to do. You... You set me up. Some Missouri boot heel hillbilly trick. I warned you, I'll kill ev... Something impossible happened then. Jim's face got even blanker. His gun hand dropped, and his expression went from blank to completely devoid of hope. His eyes looked up, then folded. His lips pursed like he was drinking sour piss. He was about to cry when he looked down at his feet, and his eyes went all buggy again. Even if he hadn't been frozen with fear, he still wouldn't have been able to run. Two pairs of hands had come out of the earth, holding his feet in place, pulling down on top of his boots. It was Pappy's Yankee field hands trying to pull themselves out of the dirt. Calvin had been wondering where they'd got to. One of them managed to get his face out, a little cotton ball stuck in his eye. You... You people are crazy, Jim said. I'll kill all of you. I'll, I'll. Jim's voice trailed off to a whimper. He looked up at the family to point his gun and threaten them, but the family stopped bowing and looked back. The shadows fell from their faces. Beneath the brims of bonnets and old straw hats, Jim saw the faces of the family he'd been threatening. A scream bounced off the mountain. A holler so loud it 
built one more fence around the Anson place. Calvin never forgot it, and it was the last time Killer Jim ever uttered a sound. At harvest time, Pappy gave Albert's old land to Calvin. It was more of a gift than an enticement to keep him around. Calvin was learning doctrine now, and he had a gift for it, strong medicine. The following summer, there was an extra farmhand working the fields. He was dressed all in black on the hottest day of the year. Well, there you have it. B.C. Bell, Chris Bell, is a Texan. He lives in Chicago now, but in his time, he's been a journalist who became a rock and roller, who became a, well, a writer of dark and thrilling things, crime, horror, science, and pulp fiction. Uh, Full disclosure here. Chris and his wife, Darlene Uris, are regulars at the Santoro's Saturday evening fright nights, movies, games, popcorn, talk. I met Chris at the Printer's Row Book Fair a few years ago, and he was hawking his wares at a stand just down the way from where I was doing about the same. His wares, though, they were beautifully illustrated trade paperback books in full-color covers of Zeppelins and 1930s-era aircraft, or shadowy figures prowling city streets clutching 45s, dames in skimpy dresses, real pulp stuff, and I love real pulp stuff. I am a pulp kid from way back when. All of it was new, though. 1930s pulp fiction, brand new, from Ron Fortier's Airship 27 Productions. Chris had just launched a new character for the airship, the the Bagman. The Bagman's a mob guy who turns in his old associates after they rub out a friend. Well, you can read it yourself in Tales of the Bagman from Airship 27. Influences in his work, Dashiell Hammett, H.P. Lovecraft, Demons, Werewolves, and Psychologists. He's currently working on his next novel and a pulp novella featuring a character he says far too mysterious to name. Look him up on MySpace, Facebook, or his infrequently updated blog, chicagobagman.blogspot.com. Tonight's narrator, Nathan Lowell, is the creator of the Golden Age of the Solar Clipper universe and the author of The Tanith Fairport Adventures. His work won the Parsec Award for Speculative Fiction, long form, in both 2010 and 2011. In addition to narrating his own work, Nathan's a regular on the Starship Sofa, and his narration of Alan M. Steele's Hugo Award-winning The Emperor of Mars was selected by the year's Top Ten Tales of Science Fiction 3. Good work, Nathan. I hope to hear from you again. And that is the evening. I hope you've enjoyed tonight's gathering here at Tales to Terrify. And, yes, before I forget, if you want to contact us to submit a story, a poem, offer your art, to volunteer as narrator, to complain, to praise, to damn to perdition, the email is talestoterrify at gmail.com. And that is it.
This is Larry Santoro wishing you a swift walk home in the dark and the cold under the ancient stars and watching eyes and pleasant dreams. <laughs>